0: Uh, as we continue our study through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to hop right into things this morning, um, but let me just give a little bit of update where we are. We're, we're in chapter 8 this morning, and so uh, this letter is written to the church at Corinth by the Apostle Paul. Remember, he had lived there for a couple of years. Um, he had spent uh, a lot of time with them, and he has you know blood, sweat, and tears um, in his ministry toward... Uh, the people in Corinth. Remember that Corinth is basically like Las Vegas on steroids. um, And, you know, even in its day would be much more than what Las Vegas is uh, because it has a lot more going on, really. Um, It has, you know, this temple um, to a false goddess where there's just, you know, prostitution is is part of the temple worship. Uh, You have a culture, the Greek culture there where they're very much in the knowledge and what they know. Um, You know, think about you know, the Greeks and uh, their, you know, philosophies of, you know, with Aristotle and Plato and Socrates. So they've got that history. Now the Romans at this time um, dominate, you know, everything uh, in this region of the world. And they're the ones who are in control. So the Romans basically had just adopted the Greek gods and gave, you know, put their own, you know, Latin names to it. Um, but it's all pretty much the same thing. And so there is this polytheistic, sensual, culture. And then, you know, when Paul came into the city, he preaches there's one true and living God, you know, in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, He teaches that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and rose from the dead and offers eternal life to everyone who believes in his name. He teaches that all of their gods that they've worshipped before in the past, as far as the Greeks, are false. And that Jesus is the Messiah. He preaches that to the Jewish people, that the ones uh, you know, that they had the one who they had crucified is the true and living Messiah. And so, you know, his message is offensive in itself, in its core. His message is offensive. But yet we see throughout the book that he works really hard to make sure that it's only the message that is offensive, not how he lives his life, not how the church conducts itself in the world. Um, not the attitudes that they take, but he wants to be very careful that how he lives and how the, the church lives that is done in such a way that it is not a stumbling block to people to come to know Jesus and also so that it's a, it's, a, its own culture, has its own culture and environment where people can grow up in maturity to be more like Jesus. But after Paul leaves, people get distracted. Their eyes You know, go away from Jesus. They start getting into these divisions and arguments. One person says, I follow Paul, another Apollos, another Peter. Now, this guy over here, they get caught up into knowing, you know, just to know for knowing's sake, and they end up knowing a lot of things that aren't even true, things that are falsely called knowledge. Um, They get caught up, some of them get caught up uh, back into the the ways that they used to live in before they came to know Jesus. Jesus. And so there's a, a lot of, of problems going here, and you see that there's also a, a, a leadership void um, in the church. You can, that's pretty obvious as you read as you read the book. Even as Paul says, there's not, not one among you who can not even one among you can judge. There should be many who can take care of these matters, take care of these issues within the church. He doesn't feel uh, like he should even have to write this letter, but he but he does. And he does so because he loves them, because he cares for them. And so he wants to get them to look back to Jesus and to understand what they should do. They've also um, written to Paul and have asked him to clarify some things on, on particular matters. And uh, So we see that throughout the book. Last, last week, um, we, in chapter 7, he addresses questions having to do with sing, being single, being married, and... You know What should someone you know, do in these different situations? And just a very short summary is that God has gifted people differently. And he's gifted, as we, I think we can say very safely, the vast majority uh, to be married. Um, and, he's, and he's gifted some to be single to, uh, and for different purposes and for different reasons. Um, and so it's not an issue that um, one is, or the other is better for your life. It's an issue of what God has called you to. And of course, if you are married, then you no longer have to answer that question, most certainly, uh, because he wants you to stay married and stay together. Um, And so we talked about that some, but if you need more conversation on that, um, talk to us and we can try to help steer that and and work with you through those things, because those issues are definitely difficult, for sure, to figure out and to deal with. Um, So as we go into 1 Corinthians chapter 8... Now we're going to see this question concerning food offered to idols, and before you sit there and go, well, that's nothing that I really deal with, and, you know, we don't really eat foods or have our offered foods sacrificed to idols, Um, hold on, because the principles apply to many different situations that we find ourselves in in our culture today. So it's important that we grasp the teaching that is in this chapter. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And then we'll pick up in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that we can be here together and that we can sing praises to your name, God. That you are the one true and living God. We thank you, God, that you sent your son, your father, that you sent your son, Jesus, to the cross for our sins. That Jesus, on that cross, you paid my price and our price Jesus, you died not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world, and that you offer life to all who will call upon your name. And so we pray, Lord, that as people um, who understand this reality of what you, who you are, God, and what you have done, that we would desire to live in such a way that builds one another up in the church, and that is a beautiful testimony to those who are not yet your followers, And so, Lord, please help us to grow and to mature in our faith, individually and collectively. We ask you this, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. Okay, so verse 1 starts with, now concerning foods offered to idols. Okay, we'll just stop right there for a second. Concerning foods offered to idols. Paul is answering this question that the church has asked him, the church at Corinth has asked him. But before we break down the details of his answer here in 1 Corinthians 8, we need to have a little bit more context. So in Acts chapter 15, and I'm just going to kind of summarize for you and, and I'll read a part of it if you want to turn there, but you don't feel like you have to. Acts 15, so we see a problem of culture between followers of Jesus from different backgrounds. Some came from Jewish backgrounds and others came from uh, Gentile backgrounds. So everybody who's not a Jew is a Gentile. So a segment of those who now became believers from Jewish backgrounds were still somewhat caught up in the law, the importance of the law, the importance of circumcision, the importance of, uh, you know, keeping the the rules and regulations. And so they, some of them went to the, you know, Gentiles that have now become believers and are trying to impose all of these old Jewish customs onto them, saying, you know, there's these foods that you shouldn't... You know, these types of foods that you shouldn't eat. Remember, the Jewish people had very much dietary rules and, you know, different types of, of, you know, birds and different types of things in the sea and different types of things on the land. They weren't allowed to eat and other things they were because God was using all that just to illustrate and to help his people to understand the difference between clean and unclean, between his holiness and things that are not holy. Um, But all of that was a picture, and that picture was fulfilled when Christ. You know, died on the cross for us and he satisfied all the requirements of the law and we know, uh, you know Jesus appears to uh, you know, Peter in a, in a vision, uh, tells to him you know, rise up, kill and eat you know, all these things that he had never touched before um, and so you know, he had set all of that straight but there's still people who are caught up on this and being caught up in this doesn't mean that they're not saved it just means that they're not informed or they don't, they don't have a right understanding on this issue. Thankfully, we don't have to have every detail right in order to be justified before God. Praise the Lord for that. But there are, of course, the important things about God and Jesus and salvation. You need to have that part correct. But some of these other things, thankfully, you can still be wrong. A person can still be wrong about and know the Lord. So when they're going to these Gentiles and they're saying, hey you need to follow these rules, and, you know, you need to be circumcised. Now, you can imagine a bunch of adult Gentile men hearing that and going, um, hold on just a second, before we get all crazy here with your plan, we, you know, we really need to know that this is something God wants us to do. You can understand that. I mean, especially if you're a guy, you can understand that. Of like, let's just be really, really, really sure here. And so it goes to the apostles and to the um, elders and the whole church in Jerusalem. Okay, because most of the apostles are at this point were still in Jerusalem. So Acts chapter 15. So it says, It pleased the apostles and elders and the whole church to send chosen men. This is Acts 15, 22 to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Namely, Judas was also named Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your soul, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So he says, basically, you know, they say there's just four things in terms of the rules and regulations that we want you to pay attention to. One is things offered to idols, the, you know 2 is you know from blood 3 is from things strangled and 4 is from sexual immorality so now in 1st corinthians chapter 8 paul is going to break down why you know through the holy spirit these instructions were given um, to the gentile believers about not eating meat sacrificed to idols so again verse Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 8, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. All of us possess knowledge. I'm Perhaps Paul's being a little bit tongue-in-cheek here. In, in, in what he's saying. Um, because again, he's, he's going with the, the culture of the church there and everyone thinking they know what is right and what's going on. But we've already seen time and again they've had to, been correct, to be corrected and they're going to need more correction as the book goes along. But he said, but this knowledge puffs up. And then he makes a contrast. But love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. You know, as we look at the whole Bible, it's clear that knowledge is important, right? What did Jesus say? You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 8, 32. But in Corinth, the pendulum has swung to an extreme love of knowledge itself, without love and without obedience. So a lot of it's not the right knowledge. It's not even the truthful knowledge. But it is a type of knowledge. But that type of knowledge is useless because it only makes the person Proud. It makes a person arrogant about what they know. And verse 2 says, if anyone imagine that he knows something, he does not know he does not know as he should know. He does not know as he ought to know. But why is that? Then we can make a connection here again to the words of Jesus, where he says, If you love me, keep my commandments. So basically. You know, Paul's saying here to the church at Corinth, like you know, if you had the right sort of knowledge and you were handling that knowledge appropriately, you would be loving God, you would be loving the brothers and sisters in the church, you would be loving the people in the world. But you know, the fact that he has to write this letter with all these corrections I mean those things aren't happening as they should. So they they know, but not as they should know. Because it's not the right information, it's not with love, it's not with obedience. And it's not with humility. This type of knowledge just makes people arrogant. You know, and this happens to a lot of people. Um, and, you know, not to pick on guys, but a lot of guys um, that fall into the, this is kind of the pattern that happens. It's kind of, you know, you, you know if you've grown up in the church or not, uh, you know, you just kind of float along and then maybe you get to be 18, 19 years old and you start to read some books and you've read a couple of books <laughs> by some, you know, smarter people than you, or you've heard some messages and everything, and then you start to think, man, I've got this whole thing figured out. And then you go around and you tell everybody about how they're wrong and what they're wrong about and how you're right and why you're right and do so in an arrogant fashion. Building yourself, puffing yourself up. How do I know this? Been there. Okay, I'm not... Coming after anybody, just saying this is a common pattern. It can happen to anyone where you, you you like to win, you know, you like to argue, like to win the argument. And the point is to win the argument more so than to know and love God, and to know and love your brother or sister in Christ, or the person who's not yet a believer. And then you realize. At some point, hopefully, man, I thought I knew what I was talking about, but I really don't know as much as I thought I knew. Let me go back to Jesus. Hopefully that happens. If that doesn't happen, then it's just a life of arrogance and misinformation and causing problems for other people. Verse 3, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Truth without love, just as arrogance doesn't help a whole lot. You have to have love, and love has to be first. Love and truth, great combination. Love by itself, without truth, well, we just end up with emotionalism and you're okay, I'm okay, and we can all just feel good here. Everybody can believe what they want to believe, and we'll just kind of float along. Don't rock the boat. Well, that doesn't do any good. You end up in the wrong place. Truth by itself is just this rigid, arrogant, hardline, you know, unwilling to yield, lack of humility junk that we don't want to be a part of. We have to have both of them together. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Love has to have the first place. We see that reiterated in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. Then he says in verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, quotations, think about that, and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So he's saying there's this, there's this true reality when it comes to idols and the gods that they represent. They're not real. And again, remember the context that Paul is writing to the church at Corinth in this polytheistic culture with the Greeks and all of their different gods, and he's basically saying, you know, Apollos, Zeus, all of these others, not real. It's all a bunch of, it's all a bunch of hooey, it's fake. It's not true at all. We know this. We know there's only one true God. In heaven and earth. There's just one true God. It says, From whom are all things and for whom, for whom we exist. Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. Again, that's the equivalency with the Father there. And through whom we exist. Jesus, the active agent in creation. Without Jesus, you and I do not exist today. Without Jesus, you and I do not have air to breathe today or water to drink or an earth to be on. He is the active agent in creation, Christ. The active agent in creation. But notice this. We exist, all things exist for God. We exist from God. And we exist for God. If sometimes you feel maybe that your existence doesn't matter that much, I would say that feeling normally comes from your, a misguided need to accomplish something or to, to be at a certain level for your own sake. And so if you exist for you, there's no fulfillment. There can be no fulfillment in that. And if you exist to accomplish tasks just for the sake of accomplishing those tasks, there's no ultimate fulfillment in that. But there is purpose and there is fulfillment in existing for God and for living out the purpose of that existence for God. For God. That's why we God made Adam and Eve in the first place. So that they would know him and walk with him. Many people have this mistaken idea that God exists for our purposes. That he is just like a genie in a bottle that you can you know, go and say the right prayer and get the thing that you want for your life. That God exists for us, that God exists to meet our needs and to make us happy. But that's not the order of things. God created us for his purposes. We exist because of him and we exist for him. And whenever the order of those two things gets you know, inversed, incorrectly. It just leads to frustration. It leads to, you know, it, it just takes your joy away. It really does because, you know, God made us so that when we are existing for him and we're in relationship with him and communion with him, we have our greatest joy. Because that's what we were made for. That's what we were made to do. You know, we can even look in the animal kingdom and see this sort of thing. You take a horse, and imagine you just put a horse in a pen that's, you know, just big enough for him to stand up in. And that's where he stays. Is that horse going to be happy? Is that horse going to enjoy its existence? No, it wasn't made for that. It was made to run. It was made to run fast. It was made to be strong. It was made to be able to carry a a person and gear and to go forward. It was made to do all of those things. And if it's just stuck in a pin, it's going to be miserable. And so many people are stuck in life trying to figure out Will this next job make me happy? Will this next relationship make me happy? Will this next sporting event that I go to make me happy? And the answer to those things is oftentimes, temporarily, yes. You will get that. If you're looking for that just simple, euphoric experience, you can find it. Either through experience or through drug or through whatever. But if you want permanent joy, if you want a joy that goes beyond your circumstances, if you want a joy that when you actually lay your head down on your pillow that night and that euphoric experience is over with, that you still have something left, that's only found in God. Because that's why we exist. That's our purpose. So do we live that way? Do we live as if our purpose is to exist for God? So we go to verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Thus sinning against your brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Those are powerful words, very powerful words. Let's break it down of what he's, what he's talking about here. He's using some questions, he's going you know, to ask the question, because those are the questions that he needs to get the people thinking about, and then he's going to answer those questions similarly to how he does earlier in the book. So they're told to abstain from things offered to idols because not all have the knowledge that these gods are not real. Even those who have come to know Christ, they can still, you know, have this idea that there's some, there's some truth or some reality in these, you know, in these idols and in, the, you know, eating food that's, was sacrificed to them. And again, for historical context, you need to understand that, you know, in the city many times people would go, you know, to the to the temples of these false gods, they would sacrifice, you know, an animal and then at that that meat would either be, you know, cooked and prepared and eaten there or it would just be taken to the marketplace and sold in the marketplace. So he says here, if you see you know, if you're a brother or sister and you've got strength, you know that this stuff isn't real. You know that this stuff doesn't matter. You use that freedom and, go, and you know, go to a place and you're eating this food and your weaker brother or sister sees you. Will they not be thinking, well, if that person can do it, that person who I respect, that person who I view as more mature, if they can do it, then it's got to be okay for me too, right? Even though their conscience does bother them about it because they have a misunderstanding. So here's the question, which is the greater reality in your life, your individual freedom or taking care of your brother or sister in Christ? Which is the most important reality, which is more important in your life? Your individual freedom, your right versus the spiritual health of your brother or sister in Christ. That's really what we're getting at here in large part. So to consider, he wants them to consider their brother in in Christ. He wants them to avoid that mistaken appearance of evil. He wants them to avoid that, and that is also echoed elsewhere in the scriptures. But notice this in verse 12. He says, Thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. You ever think about this? If you sin against your brother or sister in Christ then you're sinning against Christ, why? Because as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're part of the body of Christ. We're part of the church, the bride of Christ. And to sin against a member of it is to sin against Jesus Christ himself. Now that changes the equation. Because sometimes we can get kind of agitated at a brother or sister. They can annoy us or we don't click personality wise and we can be tempted to think well I'm going to do what I want to do here even if that person doesn't like it or it causes them a problem forget them they just annoy me anyway but do we understand that that attitude and that action is actually a sin against Jesus himself? So when we don't have the right attitude about a brother or a sister, we s- certainly should be able to have a right attitude about Jesus and then have that correct our attitude and our perspective toward our brother or sister. We need to think bigger picture. Always need to be learning to think the bigger picture, not just the isolated incident. Or that looking at that in a box or in a vacuum. There is a bigger, there's bigger stuff at play here. Bigger stuff at play. What does he say? You're going to sin against that brother or sister for whom Christ died. Wow. Since Jesus did that for us, we need to live in such a way that helps one another to grow. Because Jesus died for each one of us. He created us. He died for us. And so in chapter 9, Paul's going to take this and he's going to go into detail about all these things that he's had a right to do and a right to have, but for the sake of the church at Corinth, he put aside his rights. Michael will cover that next week. Now, in chapter 10, Cody's going to cover that in two weeks. Paul addresses this issue, um, and we need to address it here because here he addresses the part about, you know, for a believer, you know, eating meat before an idol. Um, and having believers see you. But in chapter 10, he handles this issue of being invited to an unbeliever's home to eat, and you go and eat with them, and he says, you know, don't worry about the food that's being offered to you. You know, you can just eat it with Thanksgiving. But if the person says, hey, this was sacrificed to an idol, then you need not to eat it. Why is that? Does that seem hypocritical? Does that seem kind kind of weird, kind of odd? It's not at all. Because if the unbeliever is bringing up that issue, that means that that person's conscience is likely being awakened to the differences between their false gods and the reality of the true and living God. And so then to eat that could be a stumbling block. So instead of of allowing that to be a stumbling block, you can use it as an opportunity to say, no, I'm not going to eat that, and you're not just going to say that, but you're going to continue on with the conversation of... Let me tell you why. It creates an opportunity for the good news of Jesus. So, in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So, again, in a couple weeks, we'll get into a lot more detail about all of that. But our purpose here is that you may be tempted to think that these cultural issues, things about food and drink, aren't that big of a deal and that you're a free person in Christ and you can just do what you want to do, but it's really not that simple. There are other things, bigger things, to be considered. These issues are very important because the spiritual health of some parts of the body of Christ is at stake and the witness, the testimony of the good news about Jesus going forward in the community, there in Corinth, but also apply that here in our city and in our world, those things are at stake for us today. They do matter. They do matter. These are issues with eternal consequences. So again, the purpose is here, we don't have the time, um, we're not going to go into all the individual cultural issues that we face today, um, we may just address a, a little bit to give, I want to maybe give you just an ex- one example of something that would play out today, about cultural issues that we're facing, or you want to handle these things in such a way that bring glory to God, that benefit your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that, in a way that helps the good news of Jesus to go forward in our city. So what do you do with this? How do you apply this to your life? I think the, the first thing that followers of Jesus have a responsibility to do, we need to, we obviously have a spons- responsibility to love God and to know God, to know the Word of God and what the Word of God teaches, what things are specifically Sins that, you know, there's no way this can bring honor to God. And then other things that are cultural and maybe in one culture would be appropriate and another thing would not be appropriate. And then you also have things that are just appropriate across the board. And some things you do, even if it's against the culture, again, because God says it's right. You might be in a culture where people say polygamy, there's no problem with it. Have as many wives as you want to. But we're going to look back and see what God says about it, you know, how things were created at the beginning. We're going to look at what Jesus says about it, and we're going to say, no, let a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, wife, not wives. Okay. And so we're going to say, hey, you may do this, and it might be okay as far as you're concerned here, but there's a better way, and the way of God is better, and so we're going to model that and example that, live that as an example. You may live in a culture where people are taken advantage of in their pay. And you may have the resources to be able to hire people to do certain tasks. Does that then give you the right culturally to say, well, we can just underpay as well? No, you have a higher obligation. Obligation of Jesus. Obligation to do what is right, regardless of what culture does. But there's other things that in one culture may be acceptable another culture may not, and one culture may be beneficial and another culture may be not and so you have to consider i 'm just going to handle one of those issues this morning um, just to get, to get your mind thinking or how to think about these things let 's take an issue of a tattoo for a long time in you know churches here in the south, you know having a tattoo would be frowned upon, so you have the issue of could you cause people who are weak there to stumble? Well, you have to consider that. Now culture is changing. Many churches, that's not an issue at all. In our church, not an issue. We have a good number of people in our church who have tattoos. And it's not a big deal. Okay? Now, the churches that we work with in Mexico, for them, it is a, it is a bigger deal. One, because culturally... They can be a little bit more conservative on some things, but also because tattoos are directly affiliated with gang affiliation and cartel affiliation. And so if somebody sees it from a distance, they think that person is part of a gang or in a cartel or whatever. Maybe up close, if they saw it real close, they would realize what it's about and perhaps thinks differently about that. Oh, that's just Minnie Mouse. Maybe Minnie Mouse isn't part of a cartel. Uh, hopefully we're not too big into getting many Mouse we can do, if you're going to get one I hope you can do better than that but, <laughs> but anyway so what does that mean so how do you handle that in Athens there's certain segments of the community that you will be more readily accepted if you have a tattoo and for the sake of the gospel and reaching those people you may consider getting one in order to have open doors to speak to people in that community I will say that it's probably going to take a little more than just a tattoo Okay, But all of that being said, what do you do with that? So you may look at that and evaluate that and say, well, there's a segment of the population God has called me to reach, and in order to reach them, this is a useful tool. But because I also work in another context, and there it would be not be useful, and sometimes I you know, preach in churches that are more conservative, and there it would not be useful, perhaps I put it on a part of my body where I can cover it or uncover it as is appropriate and I can be culturally sensitive based on where I am. So maybe i avoid the neck tattoo or the face tattoo, which I'm going to suggest maybe that you just avoid anyway, but that's personal preference and looking out for your employment options in the future. <laughs> that's all that is. Yes. Mm-hmm. Just say. Do we get that? Do we, are we starting to get it now a little bit? How these things are relevant? It may not be about food sacrifice to the idols, but every culture has some things that it's about. But I would also say with this, it's interesting that in Corinth, the issue is, you know, the people that are weak are just generally not as mature because they have a misunderstanding that these things, you know, these things, idols and everything aren't even real. We also do need to note, as Paul talks about in chapter 10, that there are demons behind those things. And so that's another reason to be careful and not to just be willy-nilly about it. And why, if you know, then you need to refrain. But because, again, it's a, you know, all this food's in the marketplace, it, it's kind of tough to live for them in that time. If every time they go to buy meat, they got to sit there and ask the guy 20 questions. And this meat's past you know, three or four hands. and Man, I don't know where it came from. So, you know, there's some, you know, just practicality of life um, that they had some freedom there. But there's always going to be something in your culture that you have to deal with and handle, hopefully, appropriately on these issues. So learn how to handle situations where something may be appropriate in one context, but not in another, and adjust. And make the first purpose love. Love and seeking to help, not seeking just to say, well, you've got all this wrong. And so to show you, you know, you go into a conservative church, it's like, well, you guys just don't understand that this is cool now, it's okay, and it helps me to reach people. To, so Jesus, so I'm going to go double sleeve up in here. Yeah. Okay. Maybe it don't work so much for me, but you know. Need your appropriate size guns if you're going to go double sleeve. Just saying. Y'all get what, get what we're getting at here? You get what we're getting at here? So you're not just going to jam that down their throats, but you're going to go step by step. Because culture is something that changes. Culture is something that changes. But just a word for those who know the word and who know God and who love God, when it comes to these cultural issues, understand, as the scripture talks about, it's those who are weak that can't adjust on those things. Not the things that are, and again, I want to be very careful here because this is the problem for young people. The young people young people in general, anything that the culture accepts, we tend to accept. And go, well, it's okay now. It's good. Not recognizing that God still calls it sin. Can't afford to do that. But as people get older, they tend to hold on to things that were only cultural reasons for not doing those things, and to say, hey, you still can't do those things. You still can't wear jeans to the church meeting. You still can't play drums in the church meeting. You can do them outside of that, but not in the church meeting as if they're in some sacred place. But don't we understand, according to God, that everywhere is sacred? Wherever God is, is sacred. So if he's not sacred in your home or at your place of work, that's a you problem. Wherever God is, is sacred. So what do we do on these things? Because there also has to be this part where we evaluate our failures, our failures in sin and our failures in mishandling cultural things. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Run with endurance the race that is set before us. We had some of our folks... This morning, run half marathon. A few came in a little bit late because they were running half marathon. That's a long distance as far as I'm concerned. That's a very long distance. Okay. How, how does a person finish a long race? Well, they have an end in mind. They have a, a finished goal. If you just said, you know, run indefinitely, that would be kind of defeating, right? You, you, you just give up on it. But we're told to run with endurance that there is an end that either we're going to pass away or that Jesus is going to return but our race, our struggle with sin is going to be finished with. So for here and now, lay, away, lay aside the things that ensnare us. Lay aside those sins. Look to the finish line. <laughs> Look to the beginning and the end, really. Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. There's this says, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Despising the shame. Like He did not enjoy going and being humiliated. He did not enjoy going and paying for our sins. He did it anyway because of his love for us. He did not enjoy the shame that he endured. But he endured it for our benefit. And he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And we're told to consider him. Because we haven't suffered the bloodshed yet, and are wrestling against sin. And this can be really difficult for us, and you can't, again, you can't run this race without having one's eyes on Jesus. This is the whole deal of getting the church at Corinth back, eyes on Jesus, so that you can do this. But you have to have more than eyes on Jesus, Hebrews four fourteen through 16. Seeing them, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There might be times in the race running, you know, towards Jesus, where you are weak and you are tempted to give up, and you are tempted to say it's not worth it. Maybe even in ministry to other people, we can be tempted to say, "I give up." You think Paul might have been tempted to give up on the church of Corinth, saying, "I mean, I spent two years with you guys, like blood, sweat, and tears." You still don't get it. It's not worth it. I'll just move on to somebody who might get it a little bit better. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't give up on them. He continues to love them. He continues to pray for them. He continues to instruct them. And in his ministry, he doesn't give up. So whatever your ministry is, and every follower of Jesus is to have a ministry. And whatever ministry you have, let us hear the call of God this morning not to give up, but to press on. Not to let the enemy have victory, but to continue to fight. And when things don't seem like they're going that great, things don't seem like they're going how we want them to go, individually or collectively, go to Jesus who can sympathize with our weakness. He was tempted in all points as we are, yet he was without sin. And we can go boldly to the throne of grace. We can obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And everybody has a time of need. And if we go to just ourselves, and if we go to the world, we're not going to find the help that we need. Find help in our time of need. So we need to keep our eyes on Jesus, and we need to keep with Jesus, and that's the only way that we can handle it. Because we need to become mature enough, this is the last thing, we need to become mature enough to understand that your preferences are not essential, but that the health of the body of Christ and the going forward of the good news of Jesus are essential we get that what 's essential? the health of the body of Christ, the going forward of the good news of Jesus these things are essential, much more so than our cultural preferences. We do this for god 's glory first corinthians eight six for there is one God, the Father from whom all things are for and from whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom all things are all things, and through whom we exist. We exist because of God and we exist for God. When we have these cultural issues that we face, are we going to handle those things appropriately? For God's glory, for the good of the church, and for the health of those who are not followers of Jesus yet. All of those are at stake for us. Let's be faithful. Let's be faithful to see the big picture, to get it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that we love you because you first loved us, God. Help us this morning. I know there are people in here who have weights, burdens because of sin. And Lord, help us just to put those things at your feet, dear Jesus. Lord, there are people in here this morning who have just struggles, they're, they're in a time of, of weakness and of difficulty, and I pray that you would help them to go to you, Jesus, in their time of need. That you are with us. Lord, we have cultural issues that we have to wrestle through and to work with. Help us to remember our brothers and sisters. Help us to remember the bigger picture. Lord, we have... Those in our lives who don't know you yet, we want them to know you. Help us to live appropriately in their presence so that your good news would go forward in their lives. As we take the bread and the cup this morning, Jesus, we give you thanks. We love you. We honor you. And it's in your precious name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.